This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Morning. Morning. <laughs> What's going on? How you doing? Terrible. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. This is Bobby Wallison. He's built like a pit bull, short, wide, and muscular. Bobby runs a moving company, and today he's terrible because one of his employees just called in to say he's not showing up for work. He claimed that his girlfriend's aunt died and he had to go to the funeral this morning. So when he gets back from the funeral, he has to go to the fucking unemployment line. <laughs> Bobby's company's been in business for 24 years. As he'll tell you, it's won a lot of customer service and loyalty awards. I'm proud of that, too. You should be, you should be. I'm proud that I have a business that went that long. Yeah. You know, it's hard. Yeah. And, and believe me, I am sure that people are saying, why would you want to use him? He was involved in all this stuff. Stuff he doesn't like to talk about. See, Bobby's got a secret past. We'll get into that past in a second. But first, we're going to meet another guy. He spends a lot of time on his favorite hobby. Can you tell us about one of your characters? Yeah, well, I have a character that's called the Hunter. And he's mixed between a ranger and a, a druid. And he casts spells as well as hunt. And I have a companion that's a tiger. That's almost that full grown. This is Jerry Tillinghast. In case you're not familiar with fantasy role-playing games, he's talking about dungeons and dragons. Jerry, he's a dungeon master. Like say if I want to check out an area, now I'm linked to the cat, I send the cat out and the cat can see things, and I can see what the cat sees within a mile. And I can communicate with the cat psychologically. We're linked. It's all in your head. As long as you can think, the game will never end. Where Bobby's short and muscular, Jerry's tall and heavy set, with dark eyes and gray hair and a beard that still has a few wisps of red in it. But like Bobby, Jerry has a past very different from the life he leads today. See, for many, many years, Bobby and Jerry were both enforcers in Raymond Patriarca's vast empire of crime. In that day, being a wise guy was the coolest fucking thing on the planet. There was nothing cooler. Movie stars wanted to be around them. Our crew were mongrels, we're all mutts. We not only had the most stand-up crew, we had the toughest fucking crew, and we had the best crew, and we're all innocent. <laughs> In the last episode, we introduced you to Vincent Buddy Cianci and told you about his battle with Providence mob boss Raymond Patriarca. Now, we're going to take you deep inside the inner workings of the Patriarca crime family, and we're going to do it through the eyes of these two men. 
Bobby Wallison, and Jerry Tillinghast. Today's episode, Climbing the Ladder of Organized Crime. I'm Zach Stewart-Pontier. I'm Mark Smerling. Welcome to Crime Day. See, we get two governments in this country. We get the United States government and we get the government of crime. There was New York, there was Chicago, and then there was this little neighborhood, Federal Hill, the third largest Cosa Nostra in the country. You know who I mean when I say the old man, the number one, the uno, Raymond Patriarca, the boss of New England. Organized crime is given too much credit they're merchants of fear, and if you succumb to their fear, they own you. This just happens to be organized crime, and people don't get fired. They get fired at. For a lot of guys, their journey into the mob started longer ago than you might think. And to understand how they got there, you have to go way, way back. Let's go back to the beginning. This is going to be the tough part for you, I think, is talking about your family and you grow, how you grew up. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I guess we could. i tell you what I knew well in the beginning. I knew hate. And I knew it well. Bobby Wallison's journey starts long before he had a moving company, long before he even had a driver's license. It starts all the way back when Bobby was a little kid growing up in Oakland Beach, a seedy shore town just south of Providence. What was your first memory of your dad? First memory? Yeah. When he picked me up and threw me into the air, and I landed on a mattressless, remember the Iron Springs back in the day? And it broke my nose, and I was two. I remember the blood, Remember the blood dripping? That was my first real memory of my father. So, when he was old enough, Bobby ran away from home. I ended up sleeping on the fucking the hill at Moreno Park, having to steal clothes off the clotheslines. Okay, I'll take this sweater. Let's grab that blanket so we can sleep in our box, a cardboard box. It was tough. It was tough. And I got a little bit harder every, every day. It seemed like I got harder and harder. And I said, at 12 years old, man, I felt like I was 40. By the time he was a teenager, Bobby'd been arrested many times. And then, at just 16 years old, he was sent to maximum security at the Adult Correctional Institution, or ACI. The ACI is a notorious Rhode Island prison. It's like a castle. It's huge and dark with slits for windows. There are guard towers and high walls, spirals of barbed wire. It's a scary place. Man, when I walked in there, first of all, I heard the talking and screaming and the music because you had guys screaming at other guys, people getting drunk, just getting high, right there, it hit me. It's like, you're there, this is it. 
I always knew as a kid I was going to end up there anyway. I knew. I said, this is my only avenue. There's nowhere else to go, you know. The ACI turns out to be a key stop in Bobby's journey from troubled teen to mob enforcer. But for now, we're going to leave him there and go back to the other guy we're following, Jerry Tillinghast, the dungeon master. His path to the mob also started with violence in his youth, but a different kind of violence in the Vietnam War. Think about why you went to Vietnam, why you volunteered. I'm going to tell you why, because you're going to laugh at this, but when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, that affected me so bad, I wanted to get even with somebody. To me, he was a hell of a man. And so, Jerry enlisted, and he soon found himself far from Providence, in a jungle on the other side of the planet, fighting a war he didn't understand. All I know is that we were put there in someone else's home, and we had to destroy it. You feel bad for the people at first, but after all, you don't. We used to get the, the Stars and Stripes paper mm. and see about different things were taking place and how they found our guys on patrol and mutilated and shit. And the more we read, the more angry we got. Yeah. You know, Like the captain used to say, look, it, make sure you bring back prisoners. Yeah, yes, sir, yeah. We go to go fuck himself. We ain't bringing back no prisoners. After a while, you don't care. You just don't give a fuck. I don't know. They don't turn you off. When Jerry came home from Vietnam, he reunited with his brothers. There were four of them, the Tillinghasts. They grew up in a rough part of town, South Providence. They'd always dabbled in petty crime. They used to steal bikes, lift bread from bakery trucks, pry cobblestones off the streets. Everybody in the neighborhood knew about the Tillinghast boys. Jerry was especially close with his older brother, Harold. They even sort of looked alike. People used to mix them up. But while Jerry was in Vietnam, they'd grown apart. Now, Harold was moving up in the ranks of organized crime, and things were getting serious. One evening, Jerry and Harold were out with a few friends at the Peter Pan Diner. It was late on a Monday night, November 11th, 1968. At one point, Jerry looked up and noticed that Harold was gone. I'm looking over, so where the fuck's my brother? Harold. So I go out back, he's got a shotgun and his fucking, his eyes are as big as yo-yos and his fucking face is pale. I said, what are you doing? I said, give me that fucking thing. Let's get the fuck out of here. Jerry reached out and took the shotgun from Harold's hands. Jerry waited alone in the parking lot of the diner, cradling the shotgun. Eventually, a car pulled up. The man behind the wheel rolled down the window and was surprised to see Jerry standing there instead of Harold. This was how I saw it. I sent him home, don't worry about it. You got the best of the deal. Whatever he was gonna do, you got me, not him. Why'd you do that? It was my brother, because he would've got hurt. Because I know whatever it was that we're gonna do, and I'm not gonna go into it, he didn't have it, he wasn't that made up like that. Yeah. Me, it was, I, I just come back from fucking 
combat and everything else and stuff. You know, that's all I knew. You know, was fucking destruction and shit like that from the, what we did in the service. I had no idea what it was. I didn't give a fuck. I just was looking out for my older brother. Yeah. Worst decision ever made in my life. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Jerry got into the car and drove off into the night. He won't say what happened next. But as the sun broke over Federal Hill, word traveled fast that someone had been murdered. A bookie named Mousy Rotondo. It was shock. I remember it to this day. This is Albert Baraducci. As a kid, he knew Mousy, the guy who got killed. He liked to hang around Mousy's crap game and watch the older guys shoot dice. But that day, when young Albert showed up, it was a crime scene. I mean, it looked in like it was, you know, the cops were there. <laughs> it was Mousy in two pieces. His legs are on one side of the room, and his torso is on the other side. I was like, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> you know I'm a fucking guy's in half. <laughs> he didn't get shot once, I'll tell you that. Did I throw up or run away? No, I mean, I stood there, I looked at it. I absorbed it. And I said, what the fuck? And I went home. And I went home. According to police, that hit on Mousy, that was the mission Jerry signed up for when he decided to take the gun from his brother Harold. So what happened next? I got arrested. <laughs> yeah, for that. Well, that was the, actually it was the first time. It was the first murder case. Right. We got charged with uh, Mousy Rotondo. While Jerry was awaiting trial, he was sent to the ACI, the same huge, terrifying prison where Bobby got sent when he was just 16. But unlike Bobby, Jerry fit right in. You go to jail, you, if somebody fucks with you, you gotta make an example so nobody will fuck with you again. But anyway, so we're in there, I'm in the gym working out. I was in pretty good shape as it was. I go over to this black guy, he's about 6'4", strong. He's pumping up 250 like it's water, you know? I said, listen, I says, uh, can I use them 25s? He said, I'm done with them. I said, you're not using them. I said, all I need to do is set up, put them in my bag. Hey, do you hear what I said? When I'm fucking done, I'll get the fuck away from me. And people listening, you know. I said, all right, bet. I reached down, took 25, bopped him off the fucking head with it. And bopped him again to fucking wake him now. Was almost, on his throat, was almost killing him. I'm saying, you know what? Why do I borrow him now? You're not going to need him, right? Yeah. Can you tell me how that felt? Uh, good. I don't know why I did, but... Listen, if, if, if you're gonna be bad, be good at it. If you're gonna be good, be good. If you're gonna be bad, you have to be good at it because you can't, there's no in-between. Two up-and-coming criminals, Jerry Tillinghast and Bobby Wallison, both at the ACI, and it's here that they meet the man who will change their lives forever. That's coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
with a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Crime Town. This episode, we're following two men, Bobby Wallison and Jerry Tillinghast, as they work their way up from petty crime to organized crime. Let's pick back up with Bobby, the kid who ran away from home and landed at the ACI at just 16 years old. When he arrived at the ACI, he quickly learned how things worked. Maximum security was split in two, North State and South State. Bobby was put in South State, the unit for regular prisoners. North State, that was for the wise guys. In between the two was the prison yard. And it's here in the yard that Bobby took his next step to becoming a wise guy. It all started with one of Bobby's friends, a guy named Eddie. Eddie was walking around the yard recruiting all all of his boys because he had a problem in North State. Eddie was looking to settle a beef he had with another inmate and Bobby agreed to back him up. So together, they walked across the yard toward a bench where a group of distinguished older gentlemen were sitting. So we walk over, and as as we walk towards the bench near the basketball court, there's Raymond Petriarca, Gerard Lament to his right, Raymond Patriarca, the boss of the New England mob, and Gerard Wamet, his lieutenant. Patriarca was in and out of prison pretty often over the years, and Gerard Wamet was his number two at the ACI. I knew that this whole bench was powerful because I had seen Patriarca before. I know who that is. And Gerard, I, I had a sense of who he was. You know, he was a powerful guy. Turns out that Gerard Wamet was the guy Eddie had a beef with. And before Bobby realized what was happening, Eddie pulled out a shank and threatened Wamet, right there, in front of Patriarca. This was a bad idea. Even teenage Bobby knew that. And I don't know what came over me, I just reached over, grabbed his arm, and said, come on, you can't do this, Eddie. You can't do this to these people. He said, are you fucking nuts? And he went like this with his arm, but the guards caught it, what was going on. They blew the horn, so like everybody cleared away, and Eddie finally turned and walked away. I said, you can't fucking do that, that was Petriarca. They'd been saved by the bell, but they weren't in the clear yet. As Bobby was walking away, Someone ran over with a message. Gerard Wamet wanted Bobby to come to North State for a face-to-face meeting. This could be a death sentence, but it wasn't something Bobby could refuse. So I come to the North State door, and he already knew my name, he knew everything. He said, Wallace, huh? That was really something that you did. He goes, you had a lot of balls, kid. How old are you? And I told him, you know, He said, wow, you're young. He said, come on in, come on in here. You know, we're gonna move you over to this side. We'll put you over here with us. 
Bobby's bravery had caught Wamet's eye. And hanging out with the wise guys came with some perks. Gerard says, can I get you a drink? I said, yeah, sure. He goes, what do you want? <laughs> I said, I'll take anything. I, I knew what he was talking about, because I, you know, I'm with, the, I'm with the boys. And he came over with Scott. He goes, here you go. Can you describe that? He knew something was different about these guys, obviously. You know, Raymond Patriarca, but nobody has glasses. You know, what do you mean glasses? You don't even get cups. You get a paper cup when you eat. But this was a glass, ice, the whole thing, scotch, beautiful. We want to use the phone. That's right. Wilmette was so powerful, he had his own phone inside his cell, inside maximum security. Sure, thank you. I used the phone. I called, I called Doreen, the girl I was with. They snuck in girls. They snuck in Gerard's son. Freddie Bishop had a freaking goat. He was doing time with his goat. What was he doing with that goat? <laughs> they ran the prison. Ran it like you wouldn't believe. The warden did whatever they told him. So they were just trying to keep the peace. What, the warden? Yeah. We'll keep the peace and keep his family. I'm telling you. I mean, that's the way it was. This, Bobby winding up in Gerard Wimette's cell drinking scotch, it was all part of a strategy. The ACI was like a recruiting office for the patriarchal crime family. After all, where better to spot young criminal talent than in a prison? And one of the hottest recruits there was the other guy we're following. The Vietnam veteran who's good at being bad, Jerry Tillinghast. When Jerry arrived at the ACI, he was given a work assignment in North State. And it wasn't long before he met the boss himself, Raymond Patriarca. I was a porter in his area. He used to be in this room a lot, just out of sheer respect on who he was. Even officers would say, do you need anything, anything you want? Because he was a gentleman. I don't think I ever heard him raise his voice all the time he was there. So I'd go there and see if he needed a paper or something like that, and we'd talk about, you know, different things. You know, not about crime or any of that nature. Talked about life in general. There was just something about him. It's like a magnet. Jerry and Bobby were in. Now they had a purpose. A new boss, a new life, and a blossoming career in a massive criminal organization. Here's Bobby again. That was the worst thing that could have happened to me. Because what am I now? I'm not only a little wild, crazy hoodlum, but now I'm one with power, which is terrible because now I'm capable of anything. <laughs> I think I got Raymond Petriaca behind me. And soon both men were out. Bobby finished his short sentence and the murder charges against Jerry were dismissed for lack of evidence. They didn't have any evidence. I told them because they didn't do it. That's right. why you didn't have no fucking evidence. Right. And there's no lands and grooves on a shotgun, so they can't trace it. Common knowledge, right? Anyway, once they were back on the street, both Bobby and Jerry were put to work. Bobby met Patriarca's underboss and was set up with his own franchise, 
I mainly loan sharked. The loan sharking was the best business. Here, here's a hundred. I'll see you Friday. Give me 20 bucks, you still owe me a hundred. I'll see you next Friday. Give me 20 bucks, you still owe me a hundred. And it goes on and on with everybody forever. Because you don't lend a hundred, you lend 5,000. You lend 10,000. That loan shark money was fucking unbelievable. Bobby also ran protection rackets. He would stand at the door to a club and collect a cover charge, which went directly to the mob. He did this in clubs all over Providence. It was the gallery, the bushwhacker, the peppermint lounge, fun places. They were actually fun, and we had a great time. But we just, you guys were kings. Yeah, we were like the kings down there. But when somebody stepped out of line, you had to do your thing, beat them up and throw them in a dumpster, whatever it was. For Bobby, what was so impressive about the crime family was Patriarch's sheer power, his ability to manage a sprawling empire of gambling rings and protection rackets, to keep the faucet of money flowing, to have an army of foot soldiers at his beck and call. From Bobby's place at the bottom of the organization, he looked up and saw something he admired, a man in total control. I respected him then for the boss that he was, but as the years went on and I started to understand, and I was sat down and told what the territories are and all this stuff here and what goes where and all that, now I had a lot of respect for him because of the way he operated. Here's, here's a chart. But look at the names. So this is when Raymond Sr. was alive. Young underboss Bianco, Wimet, yeah. Rudy Schiara. Dan Barry, a former reporter for the Providence Journal, is showing us a mob organizational chart. It's a who's who of the Patriarca crime family, made by the Rhode Island State Police. Raymond Patriarca, obviously, is at the top. A line connects him to the underboss. Below the underboss, the line splits to connect six capos, or captains. Each capo runs his own crew, or faction, which contains between 30 and 50 soldiers. Next to each soldier's name is a cluster of numbers. Then it's all numbered in terms of what their areas of expertise are. We have uh, pornography, prostitution, counterfeiting, gambling, assault. There's a name on the chart you might recognize, Jerry Tillinghast. He's got a few numbers next to his name. Here are the numbers, here are the numbers for Gerald, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> Let's see. One, two, five, six, seven, eight, and twelve. Protection racket, counterfeiting, receiving stolen goods, extortion, burglary, robbery, larceny, assault. And number one on the chart, murder. Patriarcha made his men do terrible things, brutal things, sometimes even deadly things. But for Jerry Tillinghast, that was all worth it. Just for the opportunity to walk into the Coinomatic on Federal Hill and talk to Raymond Patriarcha. A couple times I stopped and I went in the Coinomatic and he gave me a hug. I can't explain how that felt. Just being around him, and he was so good-hearted. He did more for that 
fucking area than them dirty pieces of shit will give him credit for. And he tried to help everybody in that damn neighborhood, good or bad. Yeah. He tried to help everybody. I loved him. He was this great guy, great guy. And he talked to you like, like, like a son, kind of, you know what I mean? I wish he was my father, you know? I wish he could have been. Once, on a wiretap, Patriarca was overheard talking to an associate, saying, quote, In this thing of ours, your love for your mother and father is one thing. Your love for the family is a different kind of love. Of course, the family he meant was the crime family. But you get the feeling that for guys like Bobby Wallison, it was their only family. My father was like a violent alcoholic. Did you ever reconcile with him? Yeah, one day, a year before he died, he caught me in the driveway coming out of the car. And he said, stop, stop, I just want to talk to you. He said, I just want you to know. I really didn't mean being the person that I was. I just couldn't help who I was. He goes, but I love you. I want you to know I love you. I said, Dad, don't worry about it. He took a step back and dried his eyes, and that was it. But that was enough, because he never gave me nothing. Even when he died, he took my last dollar to bury him. You know, and he never gave me nothing as far as love, man. None. With Patriarcha, these guys found a different kind of love. And it wasn't an accident. Patriarcha recognized their vulnerability. He understood it. He had once been like them. A lonely, troubled kid without a father desperate for some control over his life. Patriarcha testified in front of Congress a couple times, and during one of those hearings, he was asked about his childhood. He recalled that his father had died when he was just 17. Then he was asked, why had he fallen into a life of crime in the first place? And Patriarcha responded, why do a lot of young fellas do a lot of things when they haven't a father? We haven't heard the last of Bobby Wallace and Jerry Tillinghast. They'll be back in future episodes. But next week, we'll descend from Federal Hill to City Hall as Buddy Cianci begins his run for mayor. Little does he know, he's in for the fight of his life. And he'll get a little help from an unlikely source. He said, we're going to start a movement, Democrats for Cianci. I said, what? I said, I ain't fucking voting for that fucking piece of shit. That's next time on Crime Town. Crime Town is me, Zach Stewart-Pontier, and Mark Smerlin. We're produced by Mike Plunkett and Drew Nellis. Additional producing by Austin Mitchell. We're edited by Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny. Fact-checking by Mick Rouse. This episode of Crime Town was mixed by Matthew Boll. Sound design and scoring also by Matthew Boll. Our theme song is Run to Your Mama by Goat. Original music by John Cusiak and Kenny Cusiak. John Ivins, Edwin, and Beanart. Our ad music is by Matthew Boll. 
Additional sound design by Ted Robinson at Silver Sound. Additional mixing by Enoch Kim. Ale Lariu is our design director. Kate Parkinson Morgan is our digital editor. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. Thanks for your patience and guidance. You're really good at being bad. I, I mean good at being good. This season of Crime Town is dedicated to the memory of Zachary Malinowski. We miss you, Bill. Special thanks to Bobby Wallison and Jerry Tillinghast. Thanks to the Providence Journal, the Rhode Island Historical Society, Julia Haymans, Emily Wiedemann, Dr. Marion Stewart, Dan Barry, Mike Stanton, Paul DeMeo, Mary Murphy, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Providence is a special place, and we're honored to tell a part of its story. Go to our website, crimetownshow.com, for a complete list of credits. <laughs>